Welcome to the ASHG Trainee Excellence Spotlight Podcast. I'm Elham. In TES podcast, we celebrate the achievements of ASHG trainee members and share the stories behind their scientific work. You too can nominate your paper on the ASHG website at ashg.org to be featured in, in TES podcast. You can also read more about the featured trainees on the ASHG website. Our guest today is the recipient of the 2022 Kaderman Award. This award, this award recognizes two trainee-authored articles published in American Journal of Human Genetics in the previous year that best represent outstanding scientific contributions to the field of human genetics. Sean Feyer is a PhD student at the University of Washington. He received the 2022 Kaderman Award for his paper Closing the Gap, Systematic Integration of Multiplex Functional Data Resolved Variants of Uncertain Significance in BRCA1, TP53, and P10. It's an amazing paper, and if you haven't already read it, we recommend doing so after the podcast. Hi, Sean. Congratulations on your award, and thanks for joining us today. Hi, Alan. Thanks so much, and, and thank you so sure. much for having me. So um, let me start by asking you, how is it like being a PhD student? Too much work, long hours. Oh, it's it's definitely long hours, but I think it's super rewarding. You know, we get to work on projects like the one that was you know, given the Cotterman Award that I think really make a difference. So I think the long hours, uh, it's, it's really fun to be able to get in the lab, be creative and see the output of, of that work. Great. So what was the main question that you were trying to address in your paper? Yeah, so that's a good question. The main reason that we do these multiplex functional assays is to understand the functional impacts of, of genetic variants at scale. And the thought behind that is we can use the data generated in these assays to actually integrate into clinical variant interpretation to reduce the amount of variants of uncertain significance and clinical genetic tests. So when I joined the Fowler and Street Labs at the University of Washington, there had been some data generated through these assays, but we didn't yet know what the actual clinical utility of, of these assays were. So this is the first attempt at just integrating what data was already available from previously published assays um, and using that to to reinterpret the US. Yeah, we found that there was actually quite a bit of utility, up to 70% the US reclassified using multiplex functional data for, uh, for TP53. That's amazing. Uh, how long did this project take and what was the biggest challenge that you faced? So that project took about a year because the, the data that we used, the functional data had already been generated by previous groups. And I think the, the largest challenge was um, just making sure the variant interpretations were correct. And what I mean by that is, you know, I, I'm making these interpretations based on the functional data and then the, the clinical data that our collaborators sent over. But then when we make those interpretations, those are results that are actually going back out to the patients from the original testing. So not that the interpretations themselves were very difficult, but it felt like a lot of pressure to make sure to get those right. So it was, it was, I think that was the stressful part of it. Um, but all in all, it was a, a fairly, a fairly quick paper because the, the functional data was already generated. And so it was just a matter of, of combining that uh, with the clinical data and all of our collaborators were, were excellent on that project. So yeah, there, there were, there weren't too many, you know, sticking points. It was, it was really more the pressure of actually just, just getting those interpretations right. 
So if you were to redo that project, would you do anything differently? I don't know that we would do anything differently. I think we were we were pretty conservative in in our analysis. Essentially, we we wanted to get a baseline of how how useful these functional assays were in variant interpretation. So we really stuck to the 2015 variant interpretation guidelines to a T. And I think there, you know, had been some advancements in variant interpretation guidelines in the, the clinical lab that collaborated with Ambry Genetics. They sort of have their own interpretation of the guidelines. I think most labs have their own interpretation. But because we, we didn't want to lose focus, the main question at hand, which is what is the utility of the functional data, we kept the interpretations pretty much as conservative as possible which I think probably leads to more variants staying at VUS at, at the end of the day. And so I think now that we feel comfortable with this type of analysis and, and pushing a little bit more on variant interpretation, I think in a next version of the paper, we would maybe not stick to the 2015 guidelines so strictly, and we might explore different ways to integrate all the sources of data that go into a variant interpretation. Right. You're a genetic counselor, right? That's correct. Yeah. How did you end up doing a PhD and how does your experience of working with patients help you in your research? Yeah. So I, before uh, joining the genome sciences department at, at the University of Washington, I, I worked as a genetic counselor at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And I, I had two roles there. One was a project manager of a, a sequencing clinical trial called BabySeq, uh, where we uh, applied um, exome sequencing to newborns. Uh, but my other role was working in the adult genetics clinic. And so I would see patients usually twice a week. And what I realized in that experience is that the more uh, large panels that we used, we would make more diagnoses, the larger gene panels that we would use for patients with, you know, given indications. But we would also get more variants of uncertain significance on those tests. And it got to the point where nearly every single test I sent out came back with at least one, if not more, variants of uncertain significance compared to the, you know, still relatively low uh, rate of finding a pathogenic variant. So over two years of having that experience over and over, I was getting very frustrated with this, you know, with, with what I thought going into, you know, clinical genetic counseling was, you know, we would find all these, you know, pathogenic variants and that would be more of the counseling on what that means for the, the patient and their family and decision making around genetic tests um, turned into more counseling on uncertainty, which I think still has great utility um, in that interaction, but over time gets very frustrating. Um, as a genetic counselor, I found just just always having these really fancy genetic tests, and then at the end of the day, being we found something we don't know what it. During my time in adult genetics, I started to see papers coming out of the University of Washington that were you know developing the technology for these multiplexed functional assays. And what I found with the the VUS and clinic was these were usually missense variants where we didn't know the functional impact. We maybe had a patient or a group of patients that had that variant, but we didn't have enough evidence. And to me, it just made perfect sense that this is a great next step in reducing the amount of BUS that we that we see in, in clinical testing. And so I, after reading a couple papers, uh, one that stood out to me was the, the Finley et al. BRCA1 uh, saturation genome editing. I, I just said, like, it just clicked for me. And I was like, I have to, I have to get out there. I have to work on these technologies. Uh, this, this really is the future of genetic testing. And so where I, I really enjoyed 
the interactions with patients in clinic, I, I saw this as an opportunity to make an even broader impact on the, you know, the patient populations at, at large getting, you know, genetic testing. So it, it actually felt pretty easy to make the decision to apply to, to, to come out here to do my PhD. And um, yeah, I'm, it's, it's been a, a great experience um, ever since. That's an amazing story. So who is your biggest cheerleader or mentor? <laughs> I would say in the in the lab, certainly both of my PIs, uh, Doug Fowler and Leah Street, are, are major cheerleaders. You know, they. I, I think when I came out as early as my my like interview for the PhD program, like they 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 just got it. They were like, yes, they expected that more clinical folks might come through the the labs just because of the pretty to to them and us, you know, the obvious clinical implications of the research and the fact that I had you know seen the the VUS problem up close in person just made it a really good fit and um, I think we just share a level of excitement about the work that we do that we just kind of we just mesh really well and um, they've they've definitely been been major cheerleaders um, from from the get go and it just sort of allowing me to explore develop new technologies and uh, you know ask pretty crazy questions but you know, it, it seems to have been working out so far so it, it's been a really great collaboration and mentor uh, situation research is pretty demanding so how do you maintain a good work-life balance and take care of your mental health do you have any help yeah it's a really great question so there's definitely some some very long days in the lab, but I think it's it's definitely important to balance that with with hobbies and, and, and things outside the lab. So for me, I think the biggest hobby is I, I like to ride my bikes. So I, I like to go on long bike rides. I also just like to tinker. So that also feeds into that that, that biking hobby. I like to you know build, rebuild my bikes. Um, it, it keeps my body and my my brain sort of fresh with with things that are you know totally outside of of these you know genetic screens and. And, and things like that. Um, so I, I would say that's probably the biggest biggest hobby outside of outside of lab. Otherwise, I I do a lot of baking, but I think that's that's kind of pretty well in line with lab work. You know, it's just following protocols. Uh, um, but it's still fun uh, to have like a, a loaf of bread at the end of the day. Sure. So, do you have any career advice to share with your fellow researchers in human genetics? Yeah, I think everybody's experience is unique. I think we all. You know, come into genetics research from a different from a different angle, from a different place. For me, what where I've found the most success or uh, you know just enjoyment in in my work has been following the things that I'm passionate about, and along those lines, also taking risks. I think it can be very hard for a new PhD student to sign on to a project that seems like a really big risk, and because it 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 is, but at the same time, if it's a risky project that is in the an area that you're just extremely passionate about, then it will be worthwhile to to take that risk. And you don't know what the result's going to be, and it, you know it could be a, a big publication, and maybe there's no publication, but it, it opens up a new door to a, a different project that's still in that area that you're very passionate about. And so I, I would say to follow your passion. Be willing to take risks and then also if your big project is this big risky project have some side projects that are less risky just so you can maintain uh, a publication record that sort of those would be the the piece of advice from my specific experience i imagine other um, students at, at my stage would have very different advice but uh, so that's the caveat there that's what's worked for me yeah but i think if, if you're passionate about it about your project there's going to be some level of enjoyment then if it's something that you think is a good idea, but maybe you're not as passionate about. 
Yeah, that's great advice. Thanks for sharing that. So to conclude our conversation, uh, what's next for you? Yeah, so uh, next for me, I'm actually hoping to get on the faculty job market. I'm in my fifth year of my PhD and looking to wrap up summer, fall, coming up. And we're thinking of getting on the job market, essentially looking in medical genetics departments to, to sort of bridge both my technology development expertise, as well as my previous clinical genetics experience. And I, I think, yeah, I'm very excited to, to, to wrap up this chapter and, and move on to the next chapter. It's, it's hard to say what that, what the, the job market will be like. And so it's, it's a big, big unknown, but I'm, I'm very, very excited to see, you know, what's around the next corner. Well, Sean, it was a real pleasure speaking with you. Thanks again for joining us today and keep inspiring us with your science. We're rooting for you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Sure. And I would like to thank all of you for listening to this episode. You can read more about Sean's work on the ASHG website. See you in our next episode.